you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, if you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast here, please help out the show by leaving a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you can leave a rating. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Okay, let's start again, as we like to do with your messages and your emails. And first of all, let me thank all of our listeners, including Suzanne, Joseph, Bob, um, I think there was another one named Dave, uh, Jesse, um, and I might be missing one or two, who all wrote in and told me that Bravo Tango means buried treasure. I probably could have sussed that out on my own. Anyway, rather than uh, read them all, let me just read one from Suzanne who writes, In regards to the comments by the guys about Bravo Tango, I believe they're using the words from the NATO phonetic alphabet, you know, the one for radio communications where you use a word for each letter in an alphabet like Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. The words Bravo Tango would be a code for the letters B and T, so B and T would stand for buried treasure. So then... Did you find any Bravo Tango would mean, did you find any buried treasure? Makes sense to me. Love your podcast, Suzanne. Again, thank you so very much. Thanks to everybody who did that. Makes total sense. I guess my other question in all of that was why? (laughs) You know, (laughs) after it aired, I think I got as many um, what does Bravo Tango mean questions as I got. Why are they speaking in code questions? (laughs) Again, As I said last week, it's probably just two brothers saying goofy crap to each other, but you never know, right? Um, Thanks, everyone, for writing in. Uh, No one wrote in anything but Buried Treasure, so that seems to be the winner here, I guess. Makes, uh, again, makes total sense to me. I also had a few people, including our friend Mark, uh, who sent me a link to a new article in Popular Mechanics magazine, which is, I think, just hitting the stands this week or maybe next week, but it has been on a few other places, including uh, Apple News and places like that, about Oak Island. Uh, Mark, thank you for showing that to me. Um, I'll post a link on our Facebook and Twitter pages for those who haven't seen it yet. Uh, I'm working to get the author of the article on the podcast for the off-season. We're working on that now, so fingers crossed we can get to that. Um, So stay tuned. Thanks again, Mark. Okay, so let's go to the questions here. Um, We'll start with our friend Jesse, who writes, Dave, they make a big deal about an an quote-unquote officer being in Samuel Ball's house. The officer could have been in there to thank him for cabbage that he bought from him. Cabbage contains vitamin C, which helps fight scurvy. Scurvy is the name of a disease that was common among sailors and pirates during the 15th and 16th centuries, particularly when taking long transatlantic journeys during the Age of Discovery. The disease prevalent among pirates was caused by a deficiency of vitamin C thanks to limited supplies of fruit while at sea for long periods of time. This is according to Wikipedia, he says. During Captain Cook's first voyage, members of his crew were saved from gangrene by doctors who applied pieces of cabbage to their patients' wounds. Maybe these are the reasons that Ball had naval officers in his home. Uh, Jesse, you are 100% correct, and that scenario that you offer there is a very good possibility of what actually happened. Samuel Ball also had a neighbor (laughs) named Captain James Anderson, uh, who probably had a few naval connections as well, I would imagine. Um, Now, with this email in mind, let's bring in another related email. We've got a few here to get about this subject. This one comes from Alan. 
Alan writes, Dave, as a fellow podcaster and musician, I really dig your podcast on Oak Island, pun intended. As someone who actually had the opportunity to tour Oak Island, there are several things that are hard to pick up from just watching it on TV. First is the elevation of the swamp in comparison to the money pit. There is a significant grade elevation difference with the two. The money pit is substantially higher than the swamp. I have always thought perhaps the entrance to the money pit came from the swamp or what was that side of the island, and the money pit shaft was the secondary for air. If you think about it, what was originally discovered at the money pit was built coming out of the ground, not going down. A layer of dirt, then a layer of wood with a layer of dirt on top of it, repeated numerous times. Let me stop here, Alan. I think you're absolutely correct about that, and you are not alone. Um, I point this out quite a bit. Author Randall Sullivan, who wrote the book of The Curse of Oak Island, tends to believe the same thing, that uh, the money pit is not the entrance, that there is a walk-in entrance to whatever vault or whatever whatever's down there. Um, that is described just how you describe it, Alan. Anyway, he continues. This season has definitely proven something undocumented happened to the swamp, period. For the naysayers saying they didn't find anything this season, they must have been watching a different show than I am. Everything that is going on in the swamp, everything is undocumented history. Do I wish they pulled a chest of gold out? Absolutely. But I'll take what I can get with a shortened season and COVID-19 challenges that we, are, that we all underestimated, I believe. Um, yeah, I think you're right. We did underestimate that for sure. Uh, anyway, he continues. Cabbage and Samuel Ball. How did he make the money selling cabbage, you ask? A large ship's wharf out of the Ball property, a naval button found on his property. Could it be? All connected by cabbage. A little history shows that scurvy was one of the most common problems on sailing vessels back in the day, caused by a lack of vitamins, vitamin C to be specific, as Jesse said. Vessels hauled oranges, limes, and other fruit to try and combat it. The problem was they'd go bad quickly. Enter Captain Cook, who discovered that sauerkraut was a fix for it as well. Little did he know it was also high in vitamin C. So now you have a cabbage farmer, a large ship's wharf possibly, and British vessels who need cabbage to make sauerkraut. Supply and demand at its best. Keep up the great work, and don't be too hard on Robert Clotworthy. He's just reading the script given to him. Thanks, Alan. Okay. First, as a fellow podcaster, I simply must plug Alan's show. I mean, what kind of fellow podcaster would I be if I didn't? Uh, it's called Cross the Line 1524, the common man's podcast. Check them out. Seems the show's available on all the podcast outlets. I found it on a couple that I use. Uh, but let's get back to Samuel Ball and his cabbage. And let me say this first, as we all seem to be going here. Samuel Ball selling cabbage and a navel button being on there. We're all getting very skeptical here. <laughs> Right. I mean, we're not we're not they don't seem to be tying this into treasure of any kind, seem to be tying it in to uh, something completely different, uh, you know, something non treasure related. Anyway, um, so let's get back to Samuel Ball and his cabbage. Alan, I, I want to give you an answer to this, but I think before I do, I'm going to bring in yet another email on the subject. This one from Daryl, who writes, Hello there. I was thinking about your comment about how the writers for the commentary continue to mention Samuel Ball was the richest man in Nova Scotia and how a learned contact of yours from Nova Scotia had never heard of Samuel Ball until the Curse of Oak Island. Me too. I'm from Shelburne County, Nova Scotia, and in school we were taught about Oak Island often, and never once was Samuel Ball mentioned. I think I know what's up now. They are setting a narrative for a History Channel documentary miniseries about Samuel Ball. Canadian government is big on that stuff. Always keep uh, your stick on the ice. Cheers, Daryl. Daryl, I love the hockey reference. Anyway, okay, so why did I bring this part in, this part in here from Daryl about um, Samuel Ball not being one of the richest men in Nova Scotia, despite what Robert Clotworthy likes to tell us? Um, 
because you'll see why it's related in just a second. You've all heard me rant so much about this, about how much I can't stand when the narrator says uh, that one that Samuel Ball is one of the richest men, was one of the richest men in Nova Scotia. So I asked Laird Niven about this, and he answered my question with some information that certainly is pertinent in this discussion, not only about this, but also about the cabbage as well. Here is what he said when I asked him if Samuel Ball was indeed one of the richest men in Nova Scotia, uh, and whether or not that claim was instead exaggerated. He said, quote, that's one thing we're trying to work out with the archaeology. It's mainly based on the amount of land he owned on Oak Island and the mainland. We did calculate how much cabbage he could grow, which was actually a lot, but there is still no documentation saying that he did in fact grow cabbages. The artifacts we are finding at this point point to lower middle class at the most. So as far as the cabbage farming goes, which is what you guys were talking about at the beginning there, right? This is not, at the moment at least, something we can call an historical fact. And neither is the idea that he was incredibly rich. Again, the narrator, or I should say his writers, Alan says we need to be fair and he's correct. They throw around these ideas like they're facts and they're not. Now, back to the cabbage farming. It makes some sense, right? You're a farmer in a maritime area. Uh, it makes sense to grow a crop that the Navy would be willing to pay handsomely for. But again, we don't even know yet if that's what Samuel Ball did for a living. It's a very good possibility. We just aren't completely sure yet. We're jumping to a conclusion here. So what we are doing, essentially, by talking about all this and saying this is, this is we're, we're finding evidence for something that might not actually be evidence for anything at all. <laughs> now, I'm going to have more on that concept in just a second. You'll see what I mean. And just because I really can't help myself with this. The archaeologist digging at his very home says, quote, the artifacts we are finding point to lower middle class at the most. How many really, really rich people do you know? And that's how rich he would have to be in order to be one of the richest men in Nova Scotia in the 18, in early 1800s. How many really rich people do you know that would have a house full of belongings <laughs> that would make an archaeologist think we're probably lower middle class at the most? I'll admit, this is a sore, a sore spot for me. It drives me absolutely crazy. Um, this thing and an inexplicable misunderstanding of the word ancient, which also happens every single day, every single episode. But anyway, <laughs> thanks again, Jesse, Alan, Daryl. Thank you for your emails. And our thanks as always to Laird Niven. It's always, uh, I always appreciate it that he gives us the time to answer these things so that we can get correct and good answers to you guys. Um, anyway. Speaking of the naval, naval connections to Samuel Ball, let's hear now from Gary in the UK who writes, Hi Dave, not much to speak of with this week's episode. The button found by Laird and Samuel Ball's foundations didn't take much time to trace. Royal Navy master button no earlier than 1807. See attached screenshot, he said. Regards, Gary in East Yorkshire, England. Gary, again, 100% correct. Last week I put a photo of a very similar button on our Facebook page, so you can check that out. Uh, and Gary sent me a screenshot from a treasure hunting slash metal detecting club out of England um, that has found and identified many similar buttons. So I'll post that picture on the Facebook page as well for you guys. Uh, it confirms what I said in last week's show, that this was, in fact, the uniform button from a Royal Navy sailing master. Uh, that's a rank on the ship. Uh, that's the guy who's basically in charge, and the, and the people who work for him are basically in charge of the sailing portion of a naval mission, as opposed to, you know, <laughs> the shooting and killing and that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, 
it also, it's you know, I want to also point out that um, this uniform uh, was is most likely from the first part of the 19th century, as he said, but also that I've seen some people posting and sending to me buttons uh, from the French Navy as well from during this very same period that look also like this. But so far, these Royal Naval ones, at least in my mind, are the closest to me, the closest to to what this is. Again, I'll put this picture that um, that Gary sent on the Facebook and Twitter pages for you guys to have a look at and decide for yourself. Okay, let's go now to our friend uh, Jock. Jock is practically co-host of the show now. <laughs> sent me a couple emails, so I'll put them together here. Um, he writes, hi, Dave, just wanted to let you uh, know that your podcast is making us think and helping to exercise our gray matter. <laughs> hey, I learned a new word this week. I was watching Ancient Aliens on the History Channel, and Travis Taylor, the astrophysicist, quoted this human trait, pareidolia. I knew there was a word for it. As I mentioned to you last time, I thought I saw an image of Sideshow Bob from The Simpsons up in the clouds. This type of stuff is in the press all the time, especially when someone sees a religious image in a bagel. Okay, let me stop here for a second and talk about this. Uh, first of all, Travis Taylor, you remember, was actually on the Curse of Oak Island a few seasons back. Uh, he was an astrophysicist. He did some star positioning with Nolan's Cross. Um, Jock, I am very familiar with the word pareidolia. Uh, so Webster's, because uh, it's better than my definition, defines it as, quote, the tendency to perceive a specific, often meaningful image in a random or ambiguous visual pattern, end quote. And it's a very old concept, right? I mean, it often takes, as you say, a religious context, you know, like seeing a rosary and tomato seeds or <laughs> seeing the Virgin Mary's face on a piece of toast. There's a famous rock on... Um, Mars, or maybe it was the moon, that looks like a face, if you haven't ever seen that one. Um, I can't remember which one it is. <laughs> uh, in, in Oak Island terms, some see a face on the Nolan's Cross boulders, right? And you can also pair that concept with a very often talked about human phenomenon called apophenia. Now, apophenia is described by Webster's as, quote, the tendency to perceive a connection or meaningful pattern between unrelated or random things such as objects or ideas. That concept is very prevalent with conspiracy theorists and with cryptozoologists and that kind of thing. Anyway, Jock, you haven't had a bagel till you've been to the New York area. And uh, he continues, sorry, I have mentioned this before, but I think that Nolan's Cross could be a bunch of random rocks when people selectively ignore the other rocks around them. I think some people go as far to think they were actually carved into those shapes. Am I right? Let me stop you here. Um, Jock, I don't know. I've never heard that they've been carved into those shapes. I know the face is carved. That may be what you're thinking of. Anyway, he continues. I remember one show perhaps run after um, they found the Nolan's Cross thing where Jack and, ga and the gang are bushwhacking around looking for big rocks. I think every rock they saw, Jack and his enthusiastic glee would say something like, this had to be placed by humans, something like that. I wish I could find that episode. It is an old one. I kind of remember that too, Jock. Anyway, he continues. I do a lot of hiking around in the parks in this area, and when I run across a large boulder, I usually take a picture. If a boulder has been embedded in a retreating or melting glacier, it will fall. But if the rock is roughly shaped like a triangle, it will land and position itself with the pointy side up. Makes sense, right? Drop a triangle-shaped Rubik's Cube on the floor and you'll see just how it lands. The trouble with this show is they say these assumptions so often, they roughly brainwash, brainwash us into thinking it is undisputed, i.e. the Le Templar lead cross or lately the Masonic T-square or the Galleon ship anomaly. Anyway, thanks for all. that's all for now. Keep up the good work and thank you for encouraging the great participation. Cheers, Jock. Uh, Jock, like I said... 
This is why we have terms like pareidolia and apophenia to describe these very types of human, you know, what's the word, phenomenons or conditions maybe. Uh, people do this. They see things that aren't there. They go looking for evidence where none really exists and they convince themselves of these things. And listen, there's no greater example of this than on Oak Island, right? Uh, it doesn't mean nothing strange happened here. That's not what I'm saying at all. What it, what it means is, and this is true for so many quote-unquote treasure hunters or Bigfoot investigators, paranormal invest ghost hunters, that kind of thing, it means that they often go looking for evidence and they tend to find it even when there's none there. And listen, if you look hard enough and you're convinced before you even start looking that you'll find something, you'll probably find something, whether it's really there or not. Thank you again, Jack. Such a great email. Okay, let's finish up now with an email, another email from England. This one from Bob who writes, Hi, Dave. A new listener for Somerset, England here. I found your podcast on Spotify a few weeks ago, and I've been an avid listener ever since. Well, thank you. I've known about the Money Pit for decades after reading the Reader's Digest article in the 1960s, and my wife and I discovered the TV show midway through season five. As we're a few episodes of the TV show Behind the U.S. here, as I write, we have seen season eight, episode 19, A Loose Cannonball, and your podcasts are up to season eight, episode 23, Old Wharf's Tale. I listen to the relevant podcast on the morning after it's been on TV here, and I'm also playing all your other podcasts in order from, from the beginning to uh, of the in-between episodes. I'm finding them all incredibly useful resources. Your early episodes covering the Onslow Company, the Knights Templar, and the Truro Company were very insightful, but I find all the episodes very listenable and intriguing. Keep up the great work. Um, let me interrupt first and say thank you, and also say that I left that in for a shameless plug for all of you to go back and listen to the old shows. Uh, there are some that are not, you know, look for ones that aren't uh, connected to the Curse of Oak Island. I think they're all still very pertinent and listenable. Um, we have lots of plans for the offseason uh, that I'm trying to finalize now, so keep listening. Anyway, Bob continues. I have two observations to mention. First, with reference to the fascinating Swamp Road featured in the recent TV episode. I thought one of your correspondents was spot on when he wrote that the road might well have been constructed to remove something substantial from Oak Island rather than deposit something there. The supposition seems entirely logical to me. I believe I'm right in thinking that the island got its name because it's the only island in the vicinity to have a preponderance of oak trees growing on it. Could these have been considered a rare commodity in past times, valuable enough to have warranted the enormous time and effort required to construct the road to transport felled oak trees from the island's interior to ships anchored around the swamp area for onward transport. I wonder if there's any evidence, lots of tree stumps on the island perhaps, that might land, might lend weight to an explanation of this kind. Okay, let me stop again here. Bob, not that I have ever seen. Um, it's a good observation and a good conclusion for sure, but in all my years, I've not heard of there being evidence of um, suggesting Oak Island was the location of a large undocumented logging operation. If any listeners out there know of such a thing and think I'm wrong, please send it along to me so we can read it next week. He, Bob continues. Secondly, one of your podcasts mentioned Robert Dunfield and his destructive excavation work carried out in the Money Pit area during the 1960s. You described it as a crater some 100 feet across and 100 feet deep. I think it was actually more like 200 feet across. Anyway, I found a site with a photograph of this work, and it is a huge hole. 
My question is this, since he removed such a vast amount of soil and other stuff from the money pit into a great depth and then redeposited it, presumably just shoving it back in to the crater by using diggers, how can Rick and Marty's present day team be sure their boreholes are finding anything related to the original shafts and tunnels down there in their original locations? Surely Dunfield's destruction would have forever erased much, if not all, of the original shaft, as well as previous searchers, shafts, and tunnels, and pushed it back in. Mixed up mixed up all higgledy-piggledy. I didn't write that. That Bob wrote that. With my very best wishes for you and a great job. Well done, Bob. Okay. That higgledy-piggledy part. Uh, that must be some sort of English insp- expression. I felt like one of the uh, cast of Monty Python just trying to read it there out loud. <laughs> Bob, we have mentioned this before, um, and we talk about it quite a bit, and it bears repeating every time. Dunfield's crater was more like a cone, really, I would say. Um, So anything down past like uh, 50 feet or so would only have been destroyed if if Dunfield was correct on where he thought the money pit was, or at least close to correct, right? There are a lot of researchers who believe that he wasn't. Um, that he was off by quite a bit. So yes, it is possible that um, if he were only, you know, if he were more than 10 or 15 or 20 feet off, that things could be intact. Uh, and intact is such a crazy word because you're also assuming that it survived the collapse, which happened over a hundred years before Dunfeld. So things you're saying could they be intact based on what they looked like before he started digging? Yeah, I think all of these variables, all of these events are the driving force behind the idea of a big dig. After all this, that may very well be the only way to find out what is actually down there because so much has happened, so much destruction and nothing found that if you're convinced that something's still there, then... um, you know, we haven't hit it yet. Basically, that's it for one reason or another, whether it be we're looking in the wrong place or whether it be it has moved considerably down there. There's a lot of possibilities. Um, Bob, keep the emails coming, please. Folks, what a great group of emails again this week. I loved all of them. They really made me think. Um, thank you for taking the time to participate in the podcast. It really is. I got to say this, my honor to read and answer these every week. Um, if you have any Oak Island questions you would like answered on the podcast, just send me an email to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. And let's start thinking about um, doing a listener uh, only show, a listener email and message only show uh, for the end of the season for your thoughts on the season. So start thinking about that. Let's take a break now. When we come back, we'll discuss this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island. Okay. You know what? I said we're going to talk about The Curse of Oak Island, but before we do that, um, I want to say a few things about the Drilling Down episode, which aired just right before. It was sort of this making of type documentary. Um, it's important to mention this. And I'm not at all trying to be snarky. I just I just want to be honest with you. Of all the Oak Island related topics that they could do a show on, I find this kind of thing the least interesting, really. I have a basic understanding of how television shows are shot, how many people it takes, what kind of thing it is. Um, this one isn't all that much different. Um, 
so I, I really wasn't as interested in it as I think a lot of you guys may have been. And that's great. Um, but I do have a couple observations to make anyway. Um, you could see, first of all, this was shot, at least some of it was shot earlier in the year than the episode we saw this week as everything is still green and they're not freezing. Um, we meet people like John Levy, the executive producer who takes us on a, into a trailer. Uh, and there's where one of the cool things. There was these cards all over the wall in this trailer, which he describes as, quote, what Rick and Marty want to accomplish, end quote. Now, I have to ask, how many of you paused and tried to read these cards? <laughs> I, I, I read through quite a few of them. The only one I found really kind of interesting was one that said Francis Bacon handwriting expert. So really, well, somebody wants to go down the Francis Bacon road here. Um, I loved the little montage that we got after that of the cameraman getting stuck in the mud in the swamp. Uh, I ca can only imagine that must happen a lot when you look at them trudging through there. From a technical standpoint, I, I suppose it's interesting to see just how many people are involved here, right? We only see this, you know, 10 or 12 people on the island, but I mean, there's bunches of cameramen and there's a bunch of sound guys, whole catering staff and on and on and on. I mean, there's a lot of people here in this. So if you find that stuff interesting, it's awesome. This really made me think of what, and this was mentioned before by Alan in the email section, uh, what a Herculean challenge it must have been to get all of these folks out onto this island during what was the center of the COVID storm and the, and the strictest lockdowns by the Canadian government. Uh, it couldn't have been an easy task. Um, there were only a couple other things that I wanted to really mention about this. I mean, it was, like I said, it was a nice show. I'm sure fans will appreciate it. it just didn't have much for me to discuss here because that's not really the focus of the show. Um, but there are a couple things I like. Gary mentioned something about how the filming of the show is like an incredibly comprehensive treasure hunting journal. And, you know, essentially making note of everything found, where it was found, when it was found, what people thought at the time, what people said at the time, and on and on and on. You know, historical records around Oak Island are very sketchy, incomplete, and infuriating. <laughs> so for the person doing this podcast 100 years from now, um, you know, you won't have that to worry about, at least when it comes to the uh, first half of the 21st century. It's very well documented, and that's for sure. There's also a great lunch scene where... Uh, a bunch of the guys talk about how much this show has benefited the treasure hunt itself. Not always talked about, but certainly true. There was a great little mention there from Aaron Taylor. Actually, let me read you a, a, an email that Jesse, our friend, sent to us about this. He writes, um, I love the part where Maddie was talking to the gang and asking them what has changed since being in the show. When he asked Laird about having his, this ability of resources and he referred the question over to Aaron Taylor, and they were both smiling so big. Aaron had never been on a project where if he wanted something, all you had to do was ask for it. Aaron was blown away saying that just doesn't happen. In archaeology, you're always begging for stuff or do without it. That sh This shows how much um, money and resources are going into the show. And that's really true. And I think that's an important thing to always point out. All the complaints we have about the narrator all the complaints we have about you know what we think should be done or what can be done or why aren't they doing this or that. It's important to understand there is no two ways about this. The show has added a level of resource and a level of backing to the Oak Island treasure hunt that has never existed in its 200-year history. And, you know, 
That goes down to this guy, Kevin Burns, who we had a nice emotional tribute to. Uh, had my wife tearing up to see Rick get all emotional. Um, the guy who sort of helped spearhead this project, who just passed away recently. We talked about that before. Um, and that was, that's kind of it about this show. Um, let's, let's take another break here, and we'll come back and actually discuss the episode. Okay, it's time to discuss Season 8, Episode 24 of The Curse of Oak Island called Silver Lining. It looks like this is the penultimate episode of the season. Next week will be the finale. Uh, it also appears that there are two new Maddie Blake shows coming up. There is one next week before the finale at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's called Theories Galore. Uh, and then there is another one uh, the following week, even though there isn't an episode of the show, and this one's called The Best is Yet to Come. It seems to be um, sort of a review of season eight uh, shot in Traverse City, Michigan, probably after the team had finished. Um, so set your DVRs, folks. Um, okay, on to the episode review. So we have basically two areas on Oak Island to talk about here today, the swamp and the money pit. So let's begin at the swamp. Well, we're actually not really beginning at the swamp, but it's lot 32, which is Pretty close to the swamp, just to the sort of southwest of the swamp. Um, we see David Frenetti and Gary Drayton. They're metal detecting. Um, there's another weird line here by the narrator um, or the guys who wrote it. Sorry, Alan. He says the guys are looking along the quote unquote man-made beach. And that kind of confused me because isn't the man-made beach Smith's Cove? Has anyone referred ever heard Lot 32's beach referred to as man-made before? I, never, I don't know. Maybe it's just bad writing. I'm not really sure. But um, it just sent me for a loop. Those kind of things stick in my head. Uh, Gary finds a couple of interesting things. He finds what he calls a trigger guard from an old, what we would imagine would be a flintlock pistol. So if you don't know what that means, um, this is not the trigger itself. If you look at a gun, um, the little rounded piece that surrounds the trigger so it doesn't drop and fire on its own, uh, that's the trigger guard. So that's what he's saying that piece is from. Uh, I'm not sure how old it is. Certainly doesn't look modern to me. Um, and then he also finds what he calls a lead, and I think the word Gary uses is a bag seal. But we'll get to that in a minute. The cool thing here is that it, you can see right, right when you're looking at it that it has some kind of design on it. And so, you know, we're always thinking at this point, perhaps this can be cleaned up and looked at, and maybe it can be identified in some way. Uh, so Gary and David bring these pieces to the interpretive center to show Marty and Laird Niven. Laird essentially confirms what Gary says, but he calls it a lead bail seal. So this is almost impossible for me to explain um, on a podcast, on an audio podcast, uh, and they didn't do a very good job of explaining it on the show, which they could have. Uh, but if you've ever seen like a big round bale of hay on a farm, right? Okay, now what you want to do is you want to transport that. You don't want to get, want it to get wet. So you cover it all in essentially a bag. Now, they didn't have plastic back then, but they had things that were close, you know, that would help keep the water, the salt water from getting in there. So in order to seal the bag, in order to keep the bag closed, you'd kind of bring it all together at the ends, and then you'd seal it shut, and you would use this lead seal to do that. The best way I can explain this is it's kind of a lead version of like the wax seals that you would see put on letters. Does that make sense? So now a bale seal would be, again, used for transporting big bales of things like cotton, especially. 
but also things like tobacco and salt and hemp and anything that you'd be bringing big stuff together, right? Carrying lots of and not want it to be, didn't want it to get wet from the salt water. I, I mean, I think bale seals and this idea goes back even to the Roman age, you know, uh, they were used as like a corporate mark, if you know what I mean, um, or maker's mark to say who sold it or whoever made it. It was also used, I think, in sometimes as a tax stamp, I think. Anyway, so they're looking at this, but let's go, let's get back to that in a second because I want to kind of follow the show chronologically. We also had a quick scene in between this seal stuff where we're getting, uh, we see Rick getting dirty in the swamp with Aaron Taylor and Miriam Amaralt. They're excavating the stone road. Another weird line from the narrator calls the ma- calls this a man-made bog. Now, <laughs> that's a fact now? Uh, I don't think so, guys. I mean, I don't think we know this is a man-made bog. Uh, anyway, Rick pulls out a big piece of pottery, really cool round piece, which um, Aaron Taylor, I think, says dates back to the middle of the 18th century or so. The interesting thing here, at least to me, is how we're now consistently finding a lot of artifacts here, as opposed to a couple of weeks ago when we were stunned by how few they were finding, right? And they were talking about how it looks like this has all been cleaned up. Well, it doesn't seem to be cleaned up now, wherever they are. But the problem is the show isn't showing us how this all relates. Was there a certain area that looks cleaned up and then this area isn't and how does that all make sense they need to do that for us i really feel that way and 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 i i don't have any confidence that they will to be honest with you anyway let's get back to the lead bail seal um later in the episode we have another meeting at the interpretive center and laird has cleaned the seal up and he puts it under a microscope now we see some nice detail on it we see certainly what looks like initials a cross or a line down the middle And Laird points out that a a symbol on the top that looks to be the number four. Now, Laird says the number four symbolizes someone signing the cross, which sets Rick and the narrator off on a tangent about how this could only be the Templars. And companies wouldn't use religious symbols. So it has to be the Templars and on and on and on a million times. I love Rick. We all love Rick, right? Rick's part of the reason why we watch this show. But I have to say a couple of things. He's speaking way out of over his head here. Companies have used and still use religious symbology. They do it all the time. Um, he's just wrong on that. There's, there's no other way to, to say it. And the other thing is here from looking at this, and this, isn't, this one isn't on Rick. Um, now, I'm not trying to say I'm 100% correct, but I, I kind of felt when I'm looking at it like I recognize this symbol right away. Folks, look up the logos used, the various logos, and there was many, many of them, used by the East India Company. I'll put up one that they use right now. Uh, Yes, believe it or not, it still exists. It's a very different company, but it still exists. Um, Now, it might not be spot on. I'll put up a couple, actually. It might not be spot on, but they're close, right? And they're close enough to the point where uh, when you realize that the East India Company existed for centuries and they existed all over the world, Um, I would imagine there are many different versions of the logo, many derivatives of it, that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it at least seems to me to be a way to go down a a road to go down, you know, and certainly a way better possibility than the Templars. (laughs) Now I asked Laird Niven this again, um, if he did any further research after the show. And he said that the conclusion they came was a cloth maker's personal seal with a privy mark. Um, 
That, again, seems like a very logical conclusion. I see East India here. What do I know? Um, I have no clue why they insisted on making this appear Templar in origin. <sighs> but my fear is, the problem is, they already know it's not Templar. And that it is, you know, one of these cloth makers seal or at best from the East India Company. They just decided not to tell us that. Now, Gary suggests um, laser ablation testing on the lead. Like they did to date the cross, the old lead cross, and find exactly where that lead originated. If they don't do that, if we never hear from it again, man, I'll, I'll be upset. I hope they do do that and at least get us some idea. To close out, Gary calls it a top pocket find. And I absolutely love Laird's response here. He says, I actually agree. <laughs> and this is what kills me, right? So it's not Templar, but it can still tell a story of some kind. And that's what Laird loves about it. And that's why we... Listeners to a show like this really do love Laird Niven. All right, so let's head now over to the money pit. Uh, it's where the episode itself began, and we hear the narrator tell us that it is the quote-unquote beginning of the final week. People ask me all the time, why is this the final week? I don't know for sure. I mean, it could be a lot of reasons. You know, this is the final week that uh, the drilling company can be there. This is the final week of, uh, you know, that the cameras will work. Who knows? Um, but one thing that stands out to me is, boy, oh, boy, these guys look friggin' cold. <laughs> I mean, it is late in the season. Um as far as the money pick goes, it's been something of a roller coaster ride. And here's the next little run on the roller coaster, right? Uh, they're digging a new hole. It's called C11.5. Now, it's way off to the east in my mind, and uh, from what I can gather here. And they set at, at a depth of, uh, they say they're going to dig down to a depth of 118 feet for this one. And for our listener, Bob, who asked about the Dunfield crater, um, this hole in particular is nowhere near, at least from what I can gather from the map they always show us. Um, nowhere near the famous Dunfield project. Now, what they do is they show you this sort of confusing, lots of circles, looks like worms that show us where the the digs are drifting off to and stuff. But they never put it up on a nice graph for us or a nice picture of the money pit for us to see exactly where this is. So we have to kind of stop and look at it. And it's I don't know why they do that. Well, they don't just show us where they're digging here, but they, they never do. Um, anyway, regardless, the hole is a dud. In fact, later in the episode, Terry takes kind of the air out of the proverbial balloon here by calling it all, quote unquote, not terribly interesting. But borehole C11.5 is not why we're talking about the money pit in this episode. It's not the big deal. It's not the reason why um, I'm ending this podcast with discussing this area. The big deal comes... When we're introduced by the Swamp Doctor, Ian Spooner, to a colleague of his, a one Dr. Matt Lukeman, a professor of chemistry at Acadia University. Spooner says Dr. Lukeman came up with the idea of testing the water from down inside the various holes and shafts in and around the island in the Money Pit area for evidence of what I can gather corroding silver. Spooner calls it a pathfinder test, and I'm not really sure what that means, but I'll get to that in a second, because I'm sure now, uh, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Later, we see Dr. Lukeman arrive on Oak Island, uh, along with the Swamp Doctor, to take these samples. Now, as we're watching this scene, <laughs> my wife, who's on the couch next to me now, she's watching because 
Apparently, she feels compelled to at least watch the end of the season. She turns to me and says, no one thought of this before? Really? (laughs) She's got a point. Uh, Anyway, at the end of the episode, uh, we see Dr. Spooner in the war room uh, to report on the results from this test. Now, if you guys think I don't understand archaeology, I really don't understand chemistry. (laughs) According to the results, there are spikes of zinc and copper and trace amounts of silver found in the holes Spooner has labeled WS1, WS2, and WS9. Now, if you go back and pause the show uh, on a look at a map that they gave us that showed all this, which is, again, unusual but cool, uh, you'll see WS1 and WS9 are really right next to each other in the cleared out sort of section, the main section of the money pit area. Well, WS2 is in the woods just to the southeast of the money pit, but very close to the money pit, kind of right on the border of the cleared out money pit area. Um, it's also a place I wasn't, I didn't realize that anybody drilled any boreholes down there, but I guess you learn something new every day. So like I said, I don't understand this at all. So what I did was I reached out to Dr. Lukeman. Perhaps he can explain some of these things better for us. And here's what he said. Uh, quote, Okay. Oak Island has hundreds of wells sunk all over the island. And ideally, we would be testing each one of them to get a comprehensive understanding of the water chemistry across the island. However, in the interest of time and money, we initially only sampled 12 wells, the ones we thought would be most promising. This included a few in the general money pit area and at other locations dotted around the island. The samples that showed the highest metal concentrations of copper, zinc, and silver were in the money pit area, while levels were much lower in the most of the other wells. The low levels in the surrounding wells were important to see since they established a baseline for groundwater on the island. And then he clears up for me, so by Pathfinder, all we mean is that it was an initial limited exploratory study only looking at the 12 wells. Now, I can't thank Dr. Lukeman enough. He got back to us right away on this and really gave us a great answer for all this stuff. Now, in the scene we see here, Spooner calls these results a spike and say they are at 10 times peak or something. And you could see that on the chart, right? He even says that this would take a dump truck full of silver, (laughs) a a Billy Gerhart truck full of silver uh, down there in the hole to produce these results. I don't know if that's true or not. I'll take his word for it. Now, if there ever was a time to hear Rick's famous, wow, uh, this is it. But in pure Oak Island style, I am 99% sure that we will hear next week that there just isn't enough time to go looking for what this could be. So that's going to do it for another episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Shameless plug time. I have another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions. Me and my friend and radio host Chris Poe, we sit down over a drink or two. We talk a lot about pubs and music and politics. We're going to do some paranormal stuff. Basically anything two guys would talk about when sitting down at a bar. Don't know why we do it, just to have the fun, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Give it a listen. You can find Sit Downs and Sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual podcast places. 
Also, if you're enjoying our show here, Digging Oak Island, uh, don't forget, give us a five-star rating anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts especially. A uh, big thank you to everyone who's done it already. Um, I really do appreciate it. And mostly, I appreciate you guys taking the time out to do that um, and for the kind words. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Digging Oak Island. And again, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email, Island at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you send me an email or direct message on social media, keep in mind I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want it read, um, make a note of that, and I'll do my best to get back to you as soon as I can. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.